Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to them and then we get together to have a good old discussion about them. This time we're up to episode 16, Blood on the Tracks, released in January 1975. So, hello Rich, welcome back, we're in again. (laughs) <laughs> so I think, yeah, fair to say this is a, a well-known album, and not just by Bob Dylan fans. We're, we're definitely back into the, the canon of classic rock and roll here, aren't we? How familiar with this were you? I'm guessing you were very familiar, but can you tell us a bit about how you first got into it and, and what it's meant to you since then? Absolutely. I mean, this is, yeah, you're right. This is a classic rock and roll album. I mean, it's huge. It's one of the most, I would say, known Bob Dylan albums. And much to my kind of shame, I you know, I class myself as a Bob Dylan fan, but I realised that I didn't hear this at the same time, or I hadn't heard this at the same time that I was discovering a lot of other Bob Dylan albums. I distinctly remember when I did hear it, and I'll get onto that in just a moment, but I realised, and I'm not quite sure, I think without wanting to kind of crack out the violins and talk about how expensive records were back in the day, etc. I'd heard Highway 61, Times Era Changing, Desire, the bootleg series, which again we'll talk about a bit today, under the red sky. That's uh, that's one for somewhere in the future. And um, before the flood, and I think I'd heard snippets and bits and pieces of other Bob Dylan records before sort of going off to uni, but I had not heard this. I distinctly remember it though because I did a year studying in San Diego in UCSD, and it was in like a kind of freshers' fair thing, and. They had a load of stalls selling CDs and virtually everything else that you could think of. And I heard Bob Dylan blasting out across the kind of the campus. And it was the song Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And that every time it amuses me, any time that you talk to people about this record, they seem very down on that particular song. But I mean, it really did. It drew me in almost like someone was casting out a fishing line kind of thing. And I kind of drifted over. And so I realised I wouldn't have heard this until... 1999 but for me I mean it's very special it's sort of forever synonymous with living very close to the beach in a a district called Pacific Beach and I used to do a night shift at a diner and I'd get back about 10 in the morning on a Friday and I'd just stick this on and kind of on repeat and just it, it wormed its way into my consciousness I think and I did a lot of music myself I did a lot of writing and this was hugely influential so I was I, I kind of came to this later than a lot of other Bob Dylan stuff but I reckon I probably listened to this more kind of fervently I suppose than, than any other of, of his records um, up to this point anyway that's a long-winded one sorry about that but what about you mate go on what, what's what's your kind of history with this well, I was trying to think if there would be a, uh, a greater contrast between San Diego, nice sunny day, all the beautiful people at a freshest fair, and a kind of early December Saturday afternoon in Newcastle under line. Um, I'm struggling, really, but that was where I first found Blood on the Tracks, because I think, as I mentioned, when we did Highway 61, I bought Highway 61 and Blood on the Tracks in John Menzies in Newcastle under line. In about 1995 and they were the first two Bob Dylan albums that I'd ever owned and ever listened to so it was right at the start this one for me and like Highway 61 obviously it's been with me ever since I was reflecting on it I think probably it was it is the album that I've listened to the most over the years I think that has its own dangers doesn't it because there's that expression familiarity breeds contempt and 
it can certainly happen with music. But I think one of the things that, that keeps Blood on the Tracks fresh is all of the different versions that we know exist that are out there. Um, you've mentioned the, the bootleg series already. Um, so not long after coming across this record, I would have heard that and Biograph and some of the, um, the alternate versions. Obviously, recently we've had the, the full More Blood, More Tracks, where we can listen to pretty much everything, I think, was recorded in New York and, yeah, yeah, and subsequently. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the different versions of those songs are things that I've discovered as time's gone on, I think, and that's kept the record fresh and kept me wanting to go back to the original in a way that perhaps I wouldn't have done otherwise. But, yeah, certainly something that was there right at the start of my Bob Dylan experience and has, uh, and has continued to be with me up to the present day. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, um, yeah, I, th- I think you, you kind of slavishly devote yourself to a record like this. And you mentioned a gloomy day in Newcastle on the Lime. I mean, in fairness, I came back from uh, California and moved to uh, Birmingham. And Birmingham was not, not as sunny as uh, San Diego, that's for sure. But I think this, this record was very useful in as much as I listened to this. And I'm, I'm kind of straight back there as, as a young man, um, you know, overlooking the Pacific Ocean kind of thing. And so it always kind of evokes that sort of sense in me. And I had it, I had it on CD. I also bought a, uh, this is just an aside, but I, I bought a vinyl copy of it in, uh, over the Golden Gate Bridge in, in San Francisco. You go to Sausalito and um, they had these huge vinyl warehouses and they were selling off records for, I mean, it was like a dollar or a couple of dollars, something like that. And they, no, no one was buying them. Uh, you, you could have snapped up the greatest record collection in the history of the world for like hardly any money. I mean, I was a student, so I didn't really have any money. But ha- had I known, had I known... <laughs> <laughs> hindsight's a wonderful thing but yeah I mean I obviously I am a huge fan of this record and so I'm, I'm not going to kind of talk opinions very much in terms of are we justifying it as being great I think I, I will staunchly defend this one but I think what we did what we have tried to do this time is to try and kind of structure this slightly differently where we've we've tried to effectively lump all of the songs into three categories and you've got the um I'm trying to remember the way that we, uh, we've got the kind of painting style of, uh, of songs. And then we've got the sort of what we call the updated Western imagery songs. And then the other uh, section is relationship songs. So as we go through, we're going to try and talk through in those sorts of terms. And hopefully that will kind of make sense. But anyway, that's a little bit of a precursor. What about the sort of background then, mate? What kind of stuff can we say about this before we get kind of our teeth into the songs? Yeah, well, worth remembering that we are going through this uh, chronologically and picking up the albums in sequence. And so we like to put them in, in context in that way. And that's very different from the way that we experience the records in our own personal histories as we've discussed. And I think that's one of the things I'd like to touch on as we go through this, because I think this album is certainly a great record. As we said, it's become a canonical rock classic, I suppose. But it's also a really clear kind of break point in Dylan's own artistic development. And that I think for me only became clear hearing it in this sequence this time. And the background is that he'd been on their tour 74, as we, we talked about last time with the, the live album that had come out. And then through 1974, uh, he spent a lot of time in Minnesota on his, his ranch or his, his farm or whatever it was. And it appears that that was the time when he wrote a lot of these songs, or perhaps more accurately, the ideas that had been working on for years coalesced into this set of songs. And he went to record them in, in September in New York. And then very famously, of course, the album was pretty much complete at the end of that process. But on the advice of his brother, he decided that he agreed that 
the album was perhaps a bit too samey and he wanted to spice it up a little bit. So he re-recorded half the songs in Minneapolis just after Christmas, I think it was, and the album came out in uh, 1975. So what we end up with is a record that's got half the songs from the New York sessions and half the songs from the, the Minneapolis sessions. But it was a big success, wasn't it, Rich, when it came out? It was indeed, yes. It was, I mean, it was a hit record, obviously. It was, I mean, it's pretty well received. I just, when, when you talk about his brother um, giving him advice, I, I, I love that. I mean, obviously, this is called Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And, and as we've said, we say pretty much every episode, it's a case of trying to kind of link the two guys up to a point, but also just kind of a nod to their their kind of cultural influence. And I just love the idea, much as I love the idea that someone back in the day was able to kind of call Shakespeare an idiot and just remember him for being a child kind of thing and, and would have been completely unaffected by the idea that they'd gone on to fame and all of this kind of recognition. And that's exactly what's happening with Bob Dylan here, isn't it? I mean, I'd imagine at this moment in time, Bob Dylan's brother, I'd I don't know if I think his parents might still have been alive, but I'd imagine Bob Dylan's brother was one of the few people on earth that could frankly say, look, Bob, it's rubbish. Okay. You can't, you've got nothing. Like, well, what, what can you say? He's like, I remember, I remember when you were a little kid. <laughs> and I just love that idea. You know, it's almost, it was the same with Shakespeare, isn't it? That the idea that Shakespeare had, had a mother and a father and, and all of those kind of things and, and, and yet turned into this, well, obvious genius. Anyway, I've digressed hugely there. It was a hit record, yes, indeed. And it, what's interesting, though, it actually, I think this is worth mentioning, is that now you can't imagine that anyone would have said this isn't very good, but there were, the, the reviews were a bit mixed, weren't there? I mean, John Landau, who, of course, very famous anyway, uh, writing in Rolling Stone said... The record has been made with typical shoddiness, which I, I think is an interesting, uh, interesting take on it. And Nick Kent, writing in the NME, said the accompaniments are often so trashy they sound like mere practice takes. And then Crawdaddy, their review, said the instrumentation is incompetent. I mean, I could go on. That they are obviously we're making a big deal of the fact people didn't think that this was necessarily all it has become at the time. But yeah, what do you reckon to that then, mate? I mean. It's it's a shame, isn't it? Because obviously this happens with great works of art, doesn't it? Well, I guess, yeah, it, it's, it does, doesn't it? I suppose there's two things going on, really, isn't there? One is that once you get into this position where a work of art is is seen as part of the canon, it then becomes, I suppose two things happen, don't they? You get, you get the fact that it's automatically assumed to be great by anyone who encounters it. And so, you know, the idea that you start nitpicking at things is, is, um, is a little bit weird. But then any kind of actual critical reappraisal of it will, you know, in a serious way, becomes revisionist. And then it's almost like you're planting your flag on the lawn saying, well, you think that, but here I am, I'm telling you this. And um, it's, it's, it's a big thing. It's not just a, you know, oh, I don't quite like Lily Rosemary and the Jack of the Hearts. So you're like striking at the establishment and really, uh, <laughs> uh, really putting yourself out there. So fortunately or unfortunately, that's, that's where we are now with Blood on the Tracks, isn't it? It's very hard to, to come to an objective assessment of it, which is what we're going to try and do. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think it's that thing as well, when with every passing year with an album like this, it just becomes more and more accepted as this great work of art. And you, so the idea that you're going to rail against it, you've got the, the kind of all of the plaudits and the praise from all of the intervening years that you'd have to wade through. And I think, though, that the... What, have you seen any of the Beatles, um, the, the new thing on Disney Plus? Have you seen... Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm just reminded actually of when McCartney sits down. I think it's Let It Be that he plays or something like that. And he's, you know, he's there kind of in the studio playing it. And no one's listening. No one's paying any attention. I mean, I, I always thought that the first time that that song was played, and you could say the same for like Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen or anything like that, but you can be in a studio with a band and, and it'll be along the lines of, um, oh yeah, that's nice. I mean, that'll be about as as enthusiastic a response as, as people give most of the time. It's like, yeah, it's all right. I'm going to have a cup of tea. Do you want one? It's that kind of thing, isn't it? And I mean, it, it's, it's sort of the same here because it's only, I think, through the lens of like retrospect that you, you sort of filter and you realise, actually, this is incredible. But I mean, it, it hasn't, when, when something is new, it doesn't really have this reputation. And I mean, I'm just very quickly, if I may, just go off onto one of our barred links, just while I remember. Obviously, as I've said, we, we are Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And I think we can make a couple of links here because Shakespeare's most popular plays in his lifetime, for example, were the histories. And subsequently, over the centuries, I mean, we're talking centuries rather than decades, obviously, with Shakespeare. It's the tragedies that have endured. It's the tragedies that are reckoned to be the works of genius. Whereas at the time, I mean, Hamlet, which if you're going to hold up uh, a, a play to kind of compare with Blood on the Tracks from Shakespeare's canon, you could pick any number, really. But I mean, Hamlet is the kind of <laughs> top of the greatest hits. It would be there at the top of the Spotify playlist or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but Abraham Wright at the time described it as um, indifferent and mediocre as a play which someone has to put that voice there at the time. There has to be someone who says, well, this isn't that great. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And yet you look back, and I mean, I, I feel sorry because I could quite easily be that person. I could have written a review of someone and, uh, and then it transpires that it's a classic. But you always get this, don't you? But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, over to you, mate. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've gone down a rabbit warren again. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think the other thing that's going on is it's so easy for us now to see the record out of context and position it in this canon instead. Well, actually, it was a record that came out in 1975, and it's, it's almost out of place, isn't it, in, in that milieu? You can see, we, we talked last time about we're in the era of the guitar hero, you know, the, the prog rock uh, yeah. explosion yeah. was... <laughs> was um, very, very, rock had become very flabby, hadn't it, I think, at that point in time. That's a polite way of putting it, yeah. But also, in all, in all fairness, it came with a very high level of, of technical proficiency and virtuosity, which is, is largely lacking on this record. And yeah. the nicest bits of playing, actually, I think, for me, um, are when Dylan does his, his finger-picking on, on Buckets of Rain, and you, you, you're harking back, actually, to the kind of folk blues tradition, really, with that. And those little droplets of electric guitar that you get on the New York sessions that are almost like the, the mid-60s electroacoustic stuff, really. Yeah. So there's nothing revolutionary about that sound. And if you put that next to some of the stuff that was coming out in 1974 and 1975, you can see why people might have thought, well, this is yesterday's guy. Where, where is he with his with his wall of sound, with his uh, operatic rock, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's entirely lacking. This is a throwback to something from a bygone age. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if Queen had put out Bohemian Rhapsody at this stage in time. I think it might have been around about then, but I mean, they were certainly, as you, t you mentioned, operatic kind of stylings. That was out there, and it's very, it's very difficult for us to, to kind of think what it would have been like to hear this in 1975. But for me, I think... Certainly when you look at it in context, it's very difficult to avoid, as you say, looking at it in context. I think this is the moment when, when Bob Dylan kind of, he, 
he suddenly sort of begins to almost stand alone, almost like he's his own genre. It's like it's not rock anymore. It's not folk anymore. It's, it's Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is an entity kind of thing. And I think a lot of this has got to do with his longevity, really, because he's kind of outlasted a lot of his contemporaries at this point in time. And it's, he's weathered the storm kind of thing. And he's taken enough people with him that, that they'll be accepting up to a point of what he, what he comes out with. And I think, again, we'll do a Shakespeare link, if I may. This happened with Shakespeare as, as well. I mean, he, he outlasted people like Marlowe and Johnson and Decker and all of those kind of guys. And, and as a result, oh, his work has certainly outlasted them. And so as a result, we, we kind of, we see Shakespeare almost just as, as a genre unto himself as well. I mean, it happened, with, happened a little bit with the romantic poets as well. People like Wordsworth who out, outlasted Shelley and Byron and Coleridge and all of those kind of guys. And it's, it's almost like they stick around so long. You could say the same about Lemmy in Motorhead, really, but I don't know whether it's quite, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether it's quite got the artistic uh, flair. But I mean, I, I just think he, he, at this point in time, he becomes, he becomes an, an like I say, a, a thing unto himself. This is, this is Bob Dylan as a genre almost. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and we're going to be talking about this a lot more as we go through the songs. But the other really interesting thing about this album is the way in which he's almost completely reinvented the way he's working in terms of his, his songwriting style. And to have done that after, what, 14 or 15 years in the game as, a, as an extremely successful and established performer songwriter is quite astonishing, really. Can't think of too many other examples of it. And you're right, it's that that actually lends this album a lot of its weight in retrospect. It makes it so arresting when you come to it in sequence from the, the other albums we've been looking at. And I think you're right, it's what lifts him again. It's not as though he was, he was struggling for uh, cultural cachet up to this point, but it lifts him to another level, I think, that he's achieved this at this point in his career. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, I suppose we, we could talk about Bowie in terms of reinventions, but Bowie reinvented himself so many times, didn't he? I mean, whereas this is Bob Dylan... He's still recognisably Bob Dylan, isn't he? It's just that he's, I mean, a lot of people talk about the painting angle, the idea that he's approaching songwriting like a, like a painting. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure how or why. I think it, some of it is to do with the kind of abandoning of kind of time and linear kind of time and things like that. But whatever it is, it really works. This, I'll just uh, very quickly mention as well, at Cassandra, who... We're very grateful. Um, there's a lot of mentions that take place of how he's, he's based a load of songs on um, Chekhov's short stories. And yeah, this is from Twitter. So in the ravine and other short stories, there's a direct quote. So flies buzzing around your eyes, one day you'll be in the ditch is apparently from, from one of the stories in that. So thank you very much for that. And again, I've, I've heard it mentioned, but I will um, admit that I haven't worked my way through many of Chekhov's short stories. So thank you. That's a, saved a little bit of time there. Okay, mate, back to you. Well, actually, so before we dive into the songs, then, shall we just touch on one of the other extremely famous points of context that surround this album? So I think, what was it in uh, Chronicles that Bob Dylan said that he based all these songs on Chekhov plays, yeah. uh, but Chekhov stories. Yeah. But the alternative explanation is that a lot of this stuff was informed by the breakdown of his relationship. I suppose that was a big part of the reception to the record at the time. People were aware of this. People were picking up on it. People were gossiping about it, frankly. And I think that's something that we'll probably pick up as we go through it. But it's interesting the way that Dylan's dealt with this over, over time. I suppose that, that line about Chekhov was as close as he's come to an outright denial of the fact that the record was, was personal 
in any way. Closer to the release, he, he, he was singing a different tune when he said stuff like he didn't understand how people could take enjoyment from the sort of pain that's that's encapsulated in a lot of the songs. Yeah, yeah. And there's the quote from his son as well, isn't there, that um, you know, he says when other people listen to this album, they're hearing a classic album, but for him, he's hearing his parents talking. So yeah, I think that that's something that, that sits in the background to this record. I, I don't think we're going to be digging into any of the gossip, are we? But I think for me, it's it's something that you need to be aware of as, as context, but it's, it's, it's not something that is necessary to really think about or analyse or even know a lot about to, to get to the core of what makes this a great record. Would you, would you agree? I would agree. And we've talked before about the massive levels of ambiguity that, uh, that, that kind of surround virtually any of Bob Dylan's songs. And again, much in the same way that Shakespeare's plays remain interesting and remain relevant, is that you can unpick them and you can reinterpret them and their meaning is never set in stone. And I think Bob Dylan's done the same with this album. I think that you can you can see this in, I mean, you could see him almost as a detached figure singing about other people. You could read this as being intensely personal, but... As we know, <laughs> you're never going to get a straight answer any way you any, any way you look at it. So, I mean, I think yeah, the, we'll we'll try and steer clear a little bit of the more gossip column aspect of this. I mean, obviously, yes, he was undergoing a by all uh, by all accounts a very messy kind of breakup and separation at this moment in time. And there's plenty of people. I mean, the they talk about this on the uh, Is It Rolling Bob uh, podcast about the idea that Bob Dylan's uh, they argue that he never kind of got over this in, in many respects, that his, that was almost what he's continually been trying to, to, to recapture that idea of the kind of family setup that he had really. But again, who knows, I think is, is, is the, is the conclusion that you draw. Right. Well, I think we're pretty much ready to dive into the songs then, Rich. Is there anything else you want to say on the background before we, we do that? I think the only other thing that I would uh, suggest is that I think that at this point in time with this album, Bob Dylan, and this is going to sound a little bit pretentious, but he kind of almost ceases to be of his time and he becomes almost like it's Bob Dylan time. He operates on a, on a different spectral plane almost. And I think that's just quite important because it kind of ties in with this idea of it becoming timeless art, really, rather than mattering what else is going on in, in, in some regards. To just as a bit of background, I mean, what have we got? The biggest albums of 1975, Bob Marley and the Whalers Live, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, Tonight's the Night, Malpractice by Dr. Feelgood, Bowie, Young Americans, Led Zepp, Physical Graffiti. I mean, you could put Blood on the Tracks next to any of these and, and it doesn't sound like it's from the same era at all, does it? I mean, and I think that's, that, that's the kind of key. He, at this point, he realises he can put out what he wants to and people will accept it on his terms, I think. Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, mate. I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Rich. It doesn't sit comfortably with with those records, and it it does have that sense of being out of time in a way. And I think a large part of that is about this this new approach that he's got to songwriting. And I think that's that relates to the first sort of group of songs that you wanted to highlight, doesn't it? This kind of idea that he was starting to treat songwriting almost as painting. Definitely, yes. I mean. I think Shelton talks about this in some of his writing. He talks about the fragmentation of remembrance and relationships. 
and this idea that the the notion of kind of narrative form is kind of dispensed with it's very modernist really it's very modernist in terms of modernist poetry this idea of kind of dispensing with with the linear i mean and i suppose tangled up in blue would be a a prime starting point really a song that bob dylan reckons it took him 10 years to live and two years to write <laughs> i don't really know how to respond to that but there we go. <laughs> Yeah, well, I love uh, Shelton's quote on Blood on the Tracks. In his book, there's a lot of lovely writing, actually, and that's one of the ones that's, that really stands out. And I think it sums up beautifully the the kind of the ambiguity that we feel as listeners. You know, we know we know that this this is informed by the breakdown of relationships, but at the same time, it's also that kind of unreliability that the unreliability of ourselves as our own personal narrators when we are looking back on on specific events, particularly these kind of very important, um, emotionally resonant events in our lives. You can't trust your memory all the time, can you? I mean, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very banal sense in which we just forget stuff, but there's also that way in which as time goes on, your, uh, your experiences, your grievances, your reassessments layer on top of your memories and, and lead to new interpretations. And somehow Dylan's managed to capture all of that in these songs that are about fragmenting relationships and the two sort of play off each other and at the same time the linear structure of the stories also breaks down so you, you, you're left in a place where you're you're very disconcerted sometimes listening to these songs but the mastery of Dylan's craft is what keeps you grounded I think and there's no better example than, than Tangled Up in Blue. Yeah there's always always something to come back to in this song I mean I, I mentioned the idea of modernist poetry previously I mean we're really dealing with kind of between the wars of modernist poetry. And a lot of the time they used these very, very fractured narratives. And it was, well, critics have suggested that this was to kind of mirror a very fragmented world. I mean, you've got the kind of polarization of the left and the right, rise of fascism, Spanish civil war, all of that kind of stuff, which of course is very well documented. And I mean, we've got Bob Dylan, who is obviously a very conflicted figure, I know we said we weren't going to talk much about his personal life, but at this moment in time, he is. Arguably, he's kind of using aspects of this um, in his writing. The other thing with the, with the kind of painting approach is people like uh, uh, William Carlos Williams, for example, again, another modernist poet. He did quite a lot of poems which were based on kind of deconstructing or reconstructing paintings he did a lot with uh, Bruegel's paintings for example and it's this idea that you might well go into an art gallery and you'd look at a painting in a kind of well for want of a better word linear kind of fashion but if he chooses to focus in on different aspects of it then it completely changes the meaning and I think that I think there's an aspect of the uh, landscape of the fall of Icarus is, is, is the one that, that springs to mind from him but I think this idea of the painting reinterpretation sort of way of writing I think works brilliantly in this because it's kind of like a whole load of fragments of but but there is a story there there's definitely a story and a narrative there it's just that it doesn't make any sense whereas you look back at those kind of much more druggy 1960s albums and I'm not sure what the story was on, on a lot of the stuff with Blonde on Blonde for example but there's something going on here isn't there yeah absolutely and it's a really good point you make about the, the way he's dealing with story and narrative here. He's, he's always played a little bit fast and loose with uh, the truth, hasn't it? <laughs> and we talked about we talked about the way he, he embellishes and, and, and leaves things out and revises key elements in, in songs like 
even Hattie Carroll. And, uh, you know, there's been some quite um, quite brutal narratives as well that we've had in, in songs up to now, Ballad in Plain D and, and stuff like that. And we've also had the the parables on uh, John Wesley Harding. But again, even on John Wesley Harding, there's still a narrative structure that, that is very, that is pretty linear, really, throughout mm-hmm. all of it. Even on something like St. Augustine, which has a very dreamlike quality, you can still trace the narrative through it. Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, we talked about, I think we compared it to Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, actually, when we did John Wesley Harding. Um, and again, a very strange song, but <laughs> again, with a, with a story that you can hang on to. You don't really know where it's going to take you if you do hang on to it but at least you can follow it through and tangled up in blue revises all of that completely doesn't it exactly as you say the narrative is is so fragmented that you're not even really sure if you're following the same story the first few times you listen to it it takes a it takes a good few listens to actually put pieces into any kind of semblance of sense i totally agree and i think this is what makes us come back to it so often isn't it i mean because i've been trying to put this song together on and off for the best part of 20 years. And I think what makes it so incredible though, is that it's like not just a, it's not just images really, but you you could almost, it's like almost every couple of lines in this is like a short story in itself. It's so evocative of, of, of stuff that's happening. I mean, any of those lines, the, the idea of, you know, the, the person who, who see, I mean, there's quite a lot of different, geographical locations mentioned in this for starters and so it kind of flits around and I just think it's it's that which makes it so interesting really it doesn't feel like being bombarded with images it just feels like you've been taken on this very very kind of randomized sort of journey really yeah absolutely and I suppose thinking I'm thinking back to John Wesley Harding again the other song which I, I didn't mention a moment ago was All Along the Watchtower which of course does have that, that circular structure but again, I think this is this is something that's, that's different to that. I was just wondering, actually, um, just thinking off the cuff as to what extent you could compare those two songs. Because I suppose you do have the circularity in this song in the sense that it feels like the end is actually the beginning, doesn't it? But I think that the fragmentation is what's is what's different here. We don't we don't get that in all along the Watchtower. It's very much just kind of self-contained. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm running out of words here, Richard. But uh, do you think I'm I'm on I'm on the right path here? Yeah, I mean, I. I I know that we you sort of sprung this idea of the the comparison between the two, but I I agree. I think they're both cyclical. I just think that this one you may be you may be left with even more ambiguity and, and fewer answers at the end of this one, and yet you feel like you've probably been given more clues. If that makes sense, like you feel like you should understand more of this one than you do uh, with All Along the Watchtower, but perhaps the reverse is true. But again, that's that's what makes it work so well. The other two, three songs that we put into this particular category were If You See Us Say Hello, Idiot Wind and Shelter From The Storm, which kind of, I think they sort of work as a bit of a thread. Um, should we do If You See Us Say Hello? Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing I just wanted to say about Tangled Up In Blue before we move on is, and this applies to a lot of the rest of the album, actually. I think we've got the return of, of, of some of Dylan's humour here, which we haven't seen for a long time. The, the line about him working in the great north woods and the axe just falling is, is something that you could have had very easily on bringing it all back home or something like that. And we haven't had that for a long time, actually. Throughout this album, it's rightly noted for the, the, um, the sadness, the rawness, and for this, this way in which memory is played with. But actually, there's a lot of wryness as well, and a lot of kind of uh, smiling through the tears. Yeah, I've, there's aspects of this where you can imagine some of these lines when he's in a 
New York coffee house and people are passing the the, the kind of basket around and um, it's wry enough that I think he, he manages to to elicit laughter at times certainly or there's there's a, there's a knowing kind of twinkle in his eye put it that way definitely but yeah um, if you see her say hello um, so what do you think is the link here that puts this one in in this category for you one of the one of the thing I mean again it, it's it's all to do with imagery isn't it really but. I, I mean, whenever I listen to this one, I, I, I kind of get the, the idea, I think it's because you've got various locations mentioned, but of the sort of underworld spy character in um, Carly Simon's You're So Vain, it's that kind of, um, my, my theory is that, by, I mean, it's not really a theory, but at this moment in the 70s, the, the sort of rock royalty had effectively become stateless hadn't they they were kind of wandering around as tax exiles a lot of them and so this kind of dropping into conversation or into songs the the names of places it gives it a very kind of exotic sort of allure which of course would have been totally alien to most people in the in the 70s certainly in britain that are listening to this and you've got kind of various i suppose you you've got a sense here of the of, of heartbreak across a variety of time zones for want of a better word really but i mean it's there's there's something that cuts through an incredibly lonely figure i i think of it in, in painting terms you can just imagine someone silhouetted at the end of a pier kind of just staring out into the sea really and wondering where it all went wrong and and that's why that's why i put it into this category what are your thoughts on it then mate i think the thing that struck me listening back this time is the the hardness and the harshness that's almost hidden in the heart of the song it it is profoundly sad it's it's very beautiful actually the performance that makes it onto the record i think is it's a, it's a highlight isn't it in, in terms of its um, its arrangement and the delivery it's very tender but i think that the core of the song is that verse where he talks about the bitter taste that lingers on from the night he tried to make a stay yeah um, i mean what a, what a line but it's that it's that counterpoint that then sort of throws everything that's gone before into relief the other, the other line that always resonates for me in that is the one about um, always respecting her for, for doing what she did and getting free. And if you put those two next to each other, it, it puts almost a sinister bent on the song, actually. And yeah, I think, I think there's so much going on in that way that, again, it's that kind of way in which the memory of this incident has been so layered over time. And when I say that, I don't mean in Dylan's personal life. I mean... This is his art as the, the writer. He's created this scenario where the narrator is looking back on something which appears to be quite straightforward and his emotions appear to be quite straightforward, but actually it's surrounded by this ambiguity that always just gives you pause. And that coupled with the, the beauty of the arrangement and the, the effectiveness of his delivery makes, <laughs> well, makes it very, very special, put it that way. I agree. And I think as well with this one, I mean, if you read the lyrics just as a poem, for example, they actually read fairly simplistically, but it's it, that the genius of this is that the, there's that kind of acerbic side to it that's just kind of buried, almost hidden in plain sight kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I love it. And, and I love the fact that it's as pretty as it is because it does, it, it just totally wrong foots you really. Yeah. Should we do Idiot Wind? Deep breath? Let's do, <laughs> well, I was going to say, let's do Shelter from the Storm first and then okay. gird ourselves properly for Idiot Wind. Yeah, all right then. Um, well, do you want to kick off with, uh, with, with Shelter from the Storm then, mate? What are you, uh, your thoughts on this one? Well, I am conscious that we might get very repetitive here by just saying that we like the songs because that's, <laughs> that is going to happen a lot. 
spoiler alert, but yes, another another outstanding song, of course, and a, and a highlight of the record. But I suppose my reflections on this now are, 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 are two things, really. Um, one is I love the symmetry of the 10 verses. And I know there is an 11th verse that was, was cut out of the, the album version, but the fact that we arrive at verse five, and we've got this beautifully lyrical expression of suddenly she was standing there and then it's immediately turned around in verse six uh, which is now there's a wall between us something has been lost and that sort of then brings us back down to this uh, heartbreaking conclusion i think just as a lyric it works so brilliantly and, and again with the performance exactly as you say that's what elevates it to, to something truly special in addition to that the whole thing is is suffused with something that reminds me of leonard cohen in a way i don't i don't really quite know why but i don't know if you have any thoughts on that rich i think there's definite parallels aren't there i forget the song um the leonard cohen song now where it might have been one of the ones about the, the partisan or something along those kind of lines where you've got the uh, the person who appears to kind of be on the run which is essentially what we've got here but there's quite a lot of as well in a in a very cohen-esque kind of uh, way there's there's biblical imagery in this isn't there i mean there's the in a little hilltop village they gamble for my clothes i bargained for salvation and they gave me a lethal dose etc etc i think that while they're not direct quotes from the bible i certainly think that there's they 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 hit on stuff which is said in uh, in that text and so i mean and that's something of course that leonard cohen did all the time that sort of the sort of mystical reality necessarily but it's just sort of somewhere outside there's something deeply troubling about it because we can relate to it but also it kind of feels like it's outside of, of everyday kind of uh, experience as well really um yeah i think it is probably is a bit coheny really isn't it in in, in many respects uh, yeah that it's that mysticism isn't it and as you say the uh, religious imagery which speaks to something more universal than you know catholicism or the bible itself it, it is that kind of uh, as you say, exactly as you say, it's that kind of mystical realism which colours the song, uh, yeah. and that's how it how it feels like a painting, isn't it? It's it's those textures that, that appear separate from the narrative, but always um, contouring it, I suppose. Um, w- one thing I did notice as well, listening back to this, is that we've talked already about this kind of new style of songwriting that he's he's got and that, that works so effectively throughout the record. But I, I did feel that towards the end of this song, he starts switching back into uh, some of the the older style, I and mean, he's got back those images of the uh, the one-eyed undertaker and the the deputy walking on nails. That kind of stuff could have been right out of his mid sixties output, and it's very jarring when it suddenly appears here. I suppose that's the thing that I wanted to to pick up on on my experience of listening to these records in sequence with you over the last year or however long we've been. <laughs> yeah. <like> this now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because, of course, when I first heard these records, I heard Highway 61 and Blood on the Tracks together. And so hearing Dylan talk about One-Eyed Undertakers was uh, just just part of the course because I was going to go and listen to Tombstone Blues a bit later. But you do get this sense of uh, his craft evolving so strongly when you set it in context as we're doing now. And that's uh, that's something that came across in this song particularly, I think. It's funny the way that I suppose it's like a default setting, isn't it? Okay, need need another verse, I'll, I'll go... I'll go a bit mid-60s on you or whatever. All right then, mate. I think it's time. I think it's time for Idiot Wind. Deep breath again. I will put it out there that my favourite version of this is actually on um, the live album. Oh, what is it? It's uh, it's Hard Rain, isn't it? I, I think that's astonishing. And I prefer 
the bootleg series version of this also to the album version. But yeah, I mean, it's again, I think it's got that underworld spy kind of aspect to it, particularly the bit where he's he's married the woman and then she inherits the million bucks and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's just, uh, it's a fascinating story. There's something really dark about it as well. I distinctly remember hearing this blaring out of a car it was one of those really odd moments for about five seconds i was in daytona beach florida and i was standing outside a motel at a bank of payphones and sort of thumbing through the the telephone directory again for for younger listeners out there this is (laughs) this is how we used to do things and someone drove past in a convertible car and, and this was blasting out and it's like again it's an enduring memory really thinking wow that just sounds incredible doesn't matter where you hear it kind of thing it just sounds amazing i almost feel a bit fraudulent trying to do it justice in the couple of minutes that we'll probably afford it here but i mean it it's just it works as an acoustic piece it works brilliantly on this record and i mean on hard rain it is just astonishingly powerful like the drive the force behind it i mean and and the idiot wind who who is it is it self deprecating it's it, this is the thing isn't it we we always wonder and it, it, the the genius about this is just how many how many times we come back to those kind of questions and how how seldom we arrive at any kind of conclusions really Go on then. I've rambled enough. What, what are we thinking? <laughs> well, s- seldom arriving at any conclusions. I think that should be the tagline for this podcast review, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, well, yes. I mean, where to begin, really? I, sp- I suppose I did have a quote from uh, Clinton Hale in his book, well, one of his books. He calls it the greatest love-hate song of the 20th century. It's entirely appropriate in this case. I was, I've been listening to this song a lot, actually. I, I cheated a little bit. And while we were doing Planet Waves, I started listening to, to Blood on the Tracks and yeah. ended up essentially spending about three weeks listening to the various versions of Idiot Wind and very little else. And, and you're absolutely right. I think I probably do prefer the New York version to the album version. And the live versions are astonishing. And it's a testament to the strength of the song that despite the fact that there are at least three versions of the song which are stronger than the album version that are very readily available. The album version itself still packs an incredible punch when you, you put it on and listen to it, even with all that familiarity associated with it. I was playing the fool's game of trying to decide whether it might be Bob Dylan's greatest song um, while I was preparing for this podcast. And it is a, a question that's completely unanswerable, of course, but I, I, I kind of think it might be. Maybe it's just recency bias, but there's so much depth, so much weight in this song. I mean, if I was going to make a case for it being Bob Dylan's greatest song, I suppose the first thing to say is, starting with the album version, the, the sheer range of emotion he packs into those four <laughs> verses is breathtaking. The, the accumulation of incredibly affecting images, true lines, emotionally resonant lines that, that, that hit you like sledgehammers every time. Astonishing. And, and then, of course, you've got the fact that he essentially rewrote the song between recording it in New York and recording it in Minnesota. And going back to, to uh, Halen again and his, his, uh, his passage on it in, uh, in his book, which one was it? It was uh, Still on the Road. He, he's, he's not convinced by what becomes the the concluding passage in the uh, in the album version, the bit that talks about uh, I've been double-crossed now for the very last time and now I'm finally free and it, it goes on. 
and he, he talks about how um, this is this is quite vitriolic, uh, and, and it, it's there's a lot of invective, and that that undermines the um, the reversal that we get in the chorus when he talks about we are idiots. He thinks that it, it's too yeah. much of an attack on the uh, the subject of the song. But personally, I completely disagree. I think that that rewriting was inspired, and I think that the the way in which that final I don't know, would you call it a stanza or a, the, the, the final half of that verse works yeah. is, 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 is monumental. And I think out of all of Dylan, I think my favourite lines might be the bit where he spins it around. What is it? Um, you'll never know the, the pain I've suffered and all the hurt I rise above. And I'll never know the same about you. Just mind blowing. And finally, <laughs> in my little ramble, quite apart from this astonishing lyric, you've got his performances. So, the version that we, we've now got on the Bootleg series, that gorgeous acoustic performance, that incredibly weary voice, and then the version we get on the record, where it's this tour de force, this uh, persistent attack that lasts and is sustained throughout the entire song. I quite like the song, I'll put it like that. I was going to say, you're making quite the case for it. Quite some claim, though. I mean, like, you, you're forgetting songs like Wiggle Wiggle. Let's, uh, let's not forget this. <laughs> I, I've got very little to add to that, mate, because I think that this, it's, I mean, yeah, at risk of us just saying, oh, this is a good song and this is a really good song. I mean, it is. It's, it's astonishing. And, and, and for anyone out there who maybe hasn't heard a lot of the different versions, then they're well worth checking out and they can listening to them is obviously going to be far more instructive than listening to us ramble on about having listened to them. So uh, with that in mind, let's, let's, so second kind of, I mean, again, we group these fairly loosely. We'll call this one updated Western imagery, which might or might not fit. But the first aspect of this is Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And I know that people tend to be quite down on this. It's my, it was my first encounter with the, album really i mean okay so i'd heard some of the songs on the bootleg series prior to this but this is the one that kind of dragged me over the the concourse of the campus um and so i do have a soft spot for it i don't know have you seen the movie the tarantino movie once upon a time in hollywood yeah like yeah and the book's very very good for that as well i'm not working on commission i should just add that but (laughs) apparently in writing that he he was fascinated by kind of going back and looking at the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s kind of TV cowboy kind of TV specials. I suppose they were like, well, 60 minutes minus commercials. They'd probably be about 50 minutes. The sheer amount of narrative and plot that could be kind of crammed into these. And Tarantino was really, really impressed by this. This kind of reminds me, I think this is this is a little bit like a, a sort of cowboy drama, effectively. And so that's why it's under this kind of updated Western imagery. There's a hell of a lot of narrative. I mean, it, I'm not entirely sure whether we, we really figure out what happens with it, within this one or not. But I mean, it's it sort of, it mirrors that idea, doesn't it? It's like a kind of shaggy dog come cowboy story sort of thing. And um, yeah. I really like it, and uh, it's it's one that I'm still not 100% sure if I understand, but there we go. Yeah, it's definitely a pullback, isn't it, to those classic ballads that he became immersed in in, uh, in New York and, and uh, in his younger day. And it's I think it works brilliantly as a, as an evocation of that. As you say, what he adds is that uh, Western imagery. Yeah. And this again, this, this 
slightly ambiguous uh, narrative where we're not quite sure what happened. And I suppose the, the, key, the key thing there is that we never know who kills Big Jim, do we? Which is... Um, never a day goes know. by when I don't wonder, mate. Like, uh, <laughs> you're going to light a candle for Big Jim right now. Right? Well, yeah. it's, it's very much along the lines of who shot Mr Burns, isn't it? It's a, it's a, real, a real head scratcher. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it's, 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 very, it's very well observed. And I think, as, as we said in, when would it have been? In uh, Bringing It All Back Home. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about Bob Dylan's 115th Dream and the way in which he sustains the comedic effect throughout quite a long song with multiple verses. I think in this case, again, he sustains the listener's interest in this, this narrative, which we, from the beginning, we suspect is going to be a shaggy dog story. But nevertheless, we, uh, we're, we're, we're held by his, his craft and by the, the strength of the performance, which is no, no mean feat, I think. The other thing I was reflecting on this time, hearing it back, now that I'm a little bit longer in the tooth, is that uh, it's the character of Rosemary, I think, which kind of resonates the most now. Yeah. You know, that kind of the pathos of the way she, uh, she gets ready to come out and arrives and the way we kind of get the unfolding of her life story through these little vignettes and little moments all the way up to the gallows whereas when i was younger i would have had absolutely no idea what all that was about and i was um, probably just wishing i was watching lily dancing somewhere but that's another story do you know what i, I love the idea though that you could get a, an interview with bob dylan and uh in in the present day and uh there you are you ushered into some kind of ante room or whatever it is and he'll have had loads and loads of people asking him incredibly intellectual questions this that and the other as you would imagine and then you come out with the, uh, so what can I do? Uh, yeah, who, who shot Big Jim, Bob? I, it's been bothering me. I need to know. <laughs> and if anyone, out there does, if anyone out there does know who shot Big Jim, then please do, uh, do, uh, do let us know on Twitter because we will be delighted. Put that well, one I, finally. I mean, <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I would love somebody to do that. That would be absolutely fantastic. <laughs> it would truly make my day. Let's, I, I'm aware that we're probably running on a little bit, but that's, uh, that's fine. I mean, there's plenty to say about this album. I think, interestingly, Meet Me in the Morning, I really like as a song, but I actually think it sounds just purely because of the outstandingly strong nature of the material that surrounds it. It perhaps doesn't sound quite as, uh, as impressive, really. And I, I, again, I don't wish to sound overly critical because it's a, it's a great song it's just if you put it in the company of other outstanding songs it's it's only ever going to pale a little bit i mean do you think that's fair mate i think that's fair and jumping ahead a little bit i feel a little bit the same about you're going to make me lonesome when you go which i think is a stronger song actually than, than meet me in the morning but i think both of them are both of them would have been highlights on any of the records prior to planet waves um, and post John Wesley Harding, but you're right here. They just suffer from the, 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 the songs that surround them, um, which, when compared to, they do pale in comparison. But that's that's hardly reflective of anything that's particularly wrong with them as songs in themselves. Yeah, I think in the interest of just that, then we'll we'll, we'll maybe move on to the the final one in our Western imagery, updated Western imagery uh, grouping. I'm saying this like it's actually a thing and I didn't just write it down on the back of a fag packet now, but there we go. Well, it's <laughs> so a thing now, Rich. It is, it's become a thing, it's in the world. Yeah, so Buckets of Rain, which when I listened to this, I was familiar with Towns Van Zandt before I was familiar with this album. 
And it's always reminded me a little bit of a song by, called Loretta by Towns Van Zandt. And I don't think that works as a theory because Loretta is actually, was actually recorded after this. Towns Van Zandt and Bob Dylan did meet. They were sort of mutually very respectful of each other, but it's my understanding they didn't meet till the mid eighties. So I think that that's purely coincidental, but I really like the song Loretta and I like Buckets of Rain for its kind of prettiness. It's the arrangement. I mean, you mentioned earlier on the finger picking. I mean, it, it, there's something of Don't Think Twice It's All Right about this for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it parks back to those folk albums very directly. I, I love the way that it's so playful and, and witty, despite the, the quite disconsolate theme of the song. And uh, there was a great episode a couple of months ago of Is It Rolling Bob with Laura Tenshirt, I think, who was um, talking about how the lines at the end of this song sum up Bob Dylan's career. Yeah. Uh, when he, he says, oh, all you can do is do what you must you do what you must and you do it well. And I think that song works really well to close the record. And it's that kind of sense of we've been through all this pain, we've been through all this rawness, and now this is where we are. We're, we're able to, to, to reflect on it a little bit wryly, although the pain hasn't gone away. And this is where we are. We're off just for something else now, which is, which is a very Dylan way of looking at the world. It is. Okay, so I think that probably brings us on to what we've loosely termed the relationship songs, Mark. Yeah, so of course, uh, you could say that every song on the tracks is a relationship song, couldn't you? But I suppose where we're coming from is we've got that very new style of writing that we call the painting songs, where he's uh, really placing those images, messing around with the narratives. And I suppose these songs largely are, are more traditional or more accessible, more linear relationship songs. But perhaps we'll get into that and see whether we still agree when we've had a chat. But what have we got? We've got Simple Twist of Fate, You're a Big Girl Now, and You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. So shall we kick off with that last one, Rich? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that one? Yeah, I really like this one. I mean, it's, it's as you say, I think you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there when they are ostensibly quite light, but I think that there's a, there's a kick to them, there's a bite to them. I mean, it's a bit Hank Williamsy, really, this one. It, it, it reminds me of something that could sit on Nashville skyline, actually. But I say Hank Williamsy in the sense that there's a little, there's a, more of a darkness to it. It's all, almost probably too dark, I suppose, for Nashville skyline. I really love, I mean, we'll get into this a little bit more later. I really love the bass line on this one. But when I listen to it, I kind of... I, I just sort of get this impression of this, it's like a doomed romance, isn't it? A fated kind of romance. And I get the impression of this, just this guy watching this sort of red-haired burlesque girl in a Wild West vaudeville show kind of thing. I know that we, we said that this isn't the sort of Wild West imagery necessarily, but just the idea of this kind of perfect romance or whatever that, that is sort of doomed to, to fail. And um, I mean, how much of this is a reflection of Bob Dylan's um, own experiences? We will, of course, never know. How much of it has got to do with this kind of breakup with Sarah? Um, we, we, again, we won't ever know. But I think that this is, I mean, I think it, it works very, very well along all of the other, uh, alongside all of the other songs on this record. But I think it's, as, as we've said, we've, we've shoved it in this category because it's, it's, it's subtly different, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And you're, you're so right about the, the sting in the tail. I mean, some of the, the images, particularly in the early verses, they seem to be painting this picture of a, a really idealised romance, don't they? 
And it's very bucolic again, you know, harking back to what we had a few records ago. And perhaps that's why it could sit on Nashville skyline in a way. But I always get the feeling that the imagery is, is less Western and more almost English or European. You can imagine kind of a, a, a nice Jane Austen type scene down by a riverbank somewhere with all these uh, clouds shooting by overhead and, and so on. And, but, and, and Darcy, then of course, Darcy coming out of the water with me. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I got lost in a Colin Firth moment then for a minute, mate. <laughs> well, maybe that was what was bothering Dylan because he's certainly got something else on his mind, doesn't he? Because then, of course, you've got all this stuff about you might be spoiling me with too much love. And the, the, the kicker is that you're going to make me lonesome when you go. And the first time you hear it, you think, well, it's almost like a compliment, isn't it? It's, it's like, OK, you know, I'm enjoying this so much. I don't want you to go. But then the more you listen to it and as the verses unfold, you get that sense that actually this is something that's going to happen. And then that sort of puts you in the frame of mind, given the rest of the record, that perhaps this is a narrator looking back to something that's already happened and already ended. And it's that little twist of bitterness, I suppose, that gives it its particular character. Yeah, there's a real sense of pessimism in this one, isn't there? And, and you're right, I'm sure when I first heard this, I, uh, I thought it was quite lightweight. I don't think I would have given it a great deal of thought lyrically. But then I suppose it's almost deceptive because it sits alongside these very complex uh, lyrical songs on, on, on this record. And, uh, and in contrast, I suppose, you think, oh, this is a little bit almost twee kind of thing, but it's, it's very much not that, is it? I think it's interesting what you say about the Austin kind of approach here in, in as much as it's, it is, it's quite pastoral, isn't it? And I suppose the, I mean, Dylan came from that folk tradition. He came from the Harry Smith folk anthology kind of tradition and, and all of that stuff comes from Ireland and Scotland and old English folk singing and stuff along those kind of lines. And, and a lot of that is very pastoral, isn't it? And so I think there are, yeah, I agree with that. There are definite aspects of the pastoral in there. But then of course he kind of, he, as he always does, he, he updates it and he twists it around and he flips it on his head and he transports aspects of this. And, and I love that line. Um, I'll, I'll look for you in old Honolulu, um, San Francisco, Ashtabula. I mean, I, I've always thought that that's such a wonderfully lyrical line and it always sounds so exotic. And, you know, you've got Honolulu, you've got San Francisco. And I always thought that Ashtabula was I don't know, like in some Polynesian island or something like that, or just somewhere, somewhere a lot more exotic than Ohio, where uh, I've subsequently realised it's from. But you're right, it's such a beautiful line, isn't it? Both in just the way it, it, uh, it sounds lyrically, but then it also plays into that idea that he was already looking forward to the fact that this is over. It, it, there's something fated about it, isn't it? You can see where he's going to be after it's over. A yeah, beautiful song. I suppose the other thing that's really striking about this is the way that he names uh, Verlaine and Rimbaud. I guess we could probably say that in the early 60s and certainly the mid-60s, his work was even more influenced by that kind of school of poetry. But perhaps then he didn't have the confidence to have named his influences so directly yes i mean i think he was he was kind of hung up on being as mysterious as possible and we've talked at length about the masks that he wears and and has worn and continues to wear and i think yeah this is like a definite kind of nod it's an acknowledgement isn't it but we did talk previously uh, i mean we kind of touched on the idea really of, of, of sexuality within dylan's songs as well and of course 
Verlaine Rambeau, I mean, Rambeau was certainly gay. I think I'm right in saying that Verlaine and Rambeau had a gay relationship as well. So, I mean, him, and, and this, this wasn't, I mean, I know that attitudes towards such things in the 1960s were uh, far more prudish, I suppose, but um, this, was, this was known then. I mean, it wasn't like this suddenly came out that was like a Freudian slip there, doesn't it? But um, it wasn't like this suddenly came to light kind of in the years um, subsequent to that. It was known that that was the relationship between Verlaine and Rambeau. And so I think that him putting that in there, it's very clever because it just sheds an entirely different light, isn't it? And I mean, I think we forget sometimes. You've got Bob Dylan, the, the kind of check-shirted guy who, you know, was aping Woody Guthrie, riding about on trains and stuff like that. But he was also hanging out in, um, in, in the factory and places like that with Andy Warhol. I mean, he was, he was, he was very hip to kind of what was going on with, um, with sort of gender and uh, attitudes towards it in, in, in the 60s, certainly. And so him putting that in there, I mean, I think it might be playful lyricism. It might just be, oh, it, probably a lot of people would have read this as just a reference to French symbolist poetry. But there's also that other kind of underlying sort of possibility, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. I, I hadn't thought of that uh, before you just mentioned it. But it, it, I, I was just chuckling to myself because you're exactly right. It's the sort of thing that you wouldn't get even in, say, a Bruce Springsteen song of, of this time. And you certainly wouldn't get it in uh, any of the kind of stadium rock, uh, sort of a cock rock style that was becoming a senior so yeah it's another thing that puts it slightly out of time i guess i think so yeah i suppose it puts it more in the camp of the kind of singer-songwriter introspective but i mean but so much more mysterious than all of that isn't it because you you could endlessly think i mean as we are now we've come up with about three or four possibilities and knowing Bob Dylan, it's probably got nothing to do with any of these kind of things. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is how he goes, isn't it? Just one I remember. Sorry. Just one I remember. We've got a um, perhaps a slightly more than normal spurious link with the immortal bard here. In as much as he talks about dragon clouds so high above, I've only known careless love. And Anthony, the character of Anthony in Anthony and Cleopatra, says sometimes we see a cloud that's dragonish now i wonder if that might be a little bit of a stretch even by our standards that kind of crowbarring links in between the dylan and the bard but i think it's just one of these things isn't it he he kind of makes these references and he supposedly wears some of these influences on his sleeve but the relevance of that i've got no more clues to the book to how that is relevant than I have the reference that we've just kind of made about Verlaine and Rambeau. It's just this kind of, it's, it's just the, the mysterious nature of it, isn't it? Well, I'm going to claim that, Rich, and say it, it directly supports my argument that this is all set in some kind of English pastoral scene. So I think it all ties together. I'm, I'm buying that totally. <laughs> it, it all comes back to the Forest of Arden, doesn't it? This is the, this is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think you're right, though, about this song in general. It's always a pleasant listen when it comes on, but it's just so overshadowed by well it follows idiot wind doesn't it so you're always going to have a bit of an issue with that but there's so much else on the record that's demanding your attention that it does fly under the radar a little bit but again it's another one of those songs on here that, that really does reward repeated listening yes i totally agree and i think it's i think i mean in this era of of uh, spotify etc i think it's quite interesting that whenever this comes on on like a shuffle uh, or whatever you, you you happen to be listening to 
it's always surprisingly good. It's just, I, I very rarely listen to it like that. I always tend to listen to it. Well, certainly in this context, but you listen to it as a whole, as part of the whole album and um, it suffers in comparison. And I think that's unfair. So I'm going to, I'm going to fight the corner for this song because I think it's great. Well, I guess speaking of Idiot Wind, um, we're going to wrap up on this, uh, this sojourn through um, all the songs on, on Blood on the Tracks by picking up the two songs that, that precede Idiot Wind. So we're left with Simple Twist of Bait and You're a Big Girl Now. Simple Twist of Bait, like You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go from the New York Sessions and You're a Big Girl Now re-recorded in Minneapolis. And I don't know about you, Rich, but for me, from the very first time I heard this album, these two songs quite bound together in a way. I suppose because they were the first two that really grabbed me yeah. when I first heard the album. And they, they continue to be enduring favourites. I think the reason for that is that even on first listen, it's very obvious that Idiot Wind is a, is a tremendously important song and Tangled Up in Blue is this endlessly unfolding enigma. And even uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, you know you're going to be coming back to that Shaggy Dog story multiple times. <laughs> but nevertheless, I think these are much more accessible. Uh, being absolutely frank here, I, I'm quite a shallow uh, consumer of popular music. So I'm a sucker for a lovely melody and a, a direct lyric and a relatively short song. So in the same way that I was grabbed by I Want You on Blonde on Blonde, these two definitely grabbed me on Blood on the Tracks for the first time through. But I think... Despite that, they, they aren't slight songs at all, are they? No. I mean, if we can start with Simple Twist of Fate, if that's all right with you, I mean, it sounds like it should be a, a very simple song, as you've, you've already kind of alluded to. But, I mean, I think if you look at it on the page in particular, and I don't always do this with Bob Dylan songs, because I think sometimes you can you chase up blind alleys, really. But you've got this kind of constantly shifting narrative kind of standpoint, haven't you? You've got the he and the she and the they, and the it, it sort of goes all over the place, really. And you've got this glorious kind of sense of ambiguity. And I think that just lends it that air of confusion, doesn't it, really? What are your thoughts about that, mate? Are you, are you frantically looking at the lyrics of it here? Is this the... Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you've, you've broken the fourth wall there. <laughs> dog eared copy of the lyrics as you... What, as you what, I'll say, what I'll say while you're, while you're leafing through that, um, I'll, just, I'll just carry on talking for a minute then, is that it reminds me in a, in a way, of, you're going to have to forgive my pronunciation here, but there is a T.S. Eliot poem, a modernist poem, called La Filia Cepiangi. And um, it's... I think it's fascinating because what it does, and I, I've always considered Bob Dylan quite a modernist in terms of a lot of his influences. What this poem does is it kind of, it looks at a particular event from one perspective, and then it's almost like a film director who then looks at the same event from another perspective and kind of reimagines it slightly, and then shifts out to another perspective and kind of does a retrospective of the same event. Now, I know that sounds massively over the top and hugely complex but I think we've got something similar going on here because he sort of dots about doesn't he and you think well hang on is it is he talking about himself is he talking in the you know about himself in the third person or is he just talking in the third person and I I kind of see links there I realize that I've <laughs> explain that in gloriously complex and probably uh, <laughs> ludicrous terms but that's kind of my two pen to begin with anyway no, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's similar to other songs on the, the record, isn't there? 
notably Tangled Up in Blue, where he plays around with the pronouns, always keeping you guessing. But I think in this case, there's actually, in a way, even more ambiguity than there is in Tangled Up in Blue, because I do think that the key line, actually, for me, this time, listening back, is where he says, um, a little confused, I remember well. And I suppose the literal interpretation of that is, these two people he's talking about walking along by the old canal were a little bit confused and he remembers that feeling well and and that because he was one of them and that that works well of course but i think also it's almost like a like an admission of the fact that he's zooming out i feel like when you remember things we've, we've all got this kind of this relationship where with the past where our only connection to it is our own memory and we know full well that our memories are flawed. So we think we remember things well. And as far as we are concerned in our own subjective reality, we remember everything perfectly. We remember what happened, what we did, what the other person did. But actually, we know that all that gets overlaid with experience. It gets um, disturbed by the passage of time. Details change. We get memories of memories of memories. And so actually, I think the line a little confused could actually also be the narrator sort of expressing how he feels about his remembrance of this whole story. So it's both that kind of very powerful immediacy of the, the emotional strength of the memory and also the confusion that relates to actually what is going on and what, what, what is the thing that's underlying all these emotions that are still so real. And I think, actually, that, you know, that's, that's at the core of the song because you've got this really, really ambiguous, well, these, these, these ambiguous layers, I guess, that build up. I think you can, you can see some of the verses as relating to a long-term relationship that's about to end. You can see the same verses as the precursors to a one-night stand that he's still harking back to. You can imagine that, there are actually two events that are overlaid on top of each other. And so then when he expresses all this kind of melancholy and regret, you're never quite sure actually which of those events he's referring to. And it's, it's, it's dizzying, dazzling, and I think it works impeccably well. I can't imagine another writer of popular music who could have made it work in such an effective fashion. Oh, I, I agree. I think that, I mean, <clears throat> we've almost strayed a bit into kind of psychoanalysis there, but I mean, I think... I think that's kind of what is going on here. You've got, I mean, I think it's, it attests to Bob Dylan's just sheer intellect, doesn't it, as well? The fact that he can juggle all of these things at the same time and, and kind of make them work. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting what you say, because, yeah, memory is massively imperfect. And, of course, it's clouded by nostalgia. And we redesign memories because in terms of how we wanted them to be um, and how we want them to, to want to remember them, as you say. And this... There is nostalgia in this, but I also think that there's a, I mean, if we're going to go down the kind of more philosophical route here, this idea of the simple twist of fate, it's always fascinated me, fate, the fact that you've met one person at one particular time, the amount of probability is so minuscule that any two people, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, and I think that this is, this is kind of acknowledging, therefore, the sort of fleeting nature of love. And it kind of ties in with the pessimism on the previous song that we're talking about, really. This idea that, well, yeah, this might happen, but it, it might come to nothing. And that's just kind of the way of the world, almost. I find it fascinating. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about this one without, without kind of going into sort of pseudo-intellectual stuff, really. <laughs> that, that, and that would be a sham it. and a mockery, if ever there was <laughs> 
Well, I suppose the only other thing I'd like to say about it is it's just such a gorgeous song, isn't it? We're going to talk about performances a bit more later, so I won't dwell on that. But a beautiful, beautiful song. And we don't always think of Bob Dylan as being a, a penner of, of uh, lovely melodies and, and uh, easy listening pop songs. But this is, this, this, this is one. It's, it's, oh, just, it's just gorgeous. I agree. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, we should probably, uh, we should probably think about you're a big girl now then moving on in our in our kind of we've bracketed this one as a relationship song also i agree with what you said earlier i do always think of these two kind of going hand in hand i'm um i'm probably not as much of a fan of this as i think you are mark if the truth be known i mean the uh i think it's a nice song but i think it also as we've said before at risk of kind of sounding like a broken record it does maybe pale a little bit into com- in comparison with some of the things around it is it a flip off to sarah do we think what's what's your take on it it's, it's an interesting one isn't it i suppose i don't see it like that in shelton he talks about how the, the payoff line is is patronizing to anybody except a child and so i suppose you could you could see it in that in that sense but I guess for me, I think again, this is this is one of the things that that is repeated again and again throughout the record. You get these um, these reversals where you think you've got a handle on what's going on, and all of a sudden he pulls the rug out from under you. And it's it's kind of like it's not even an intellectual exercise; it's an emotional exercise. And you you're wrong-footed for yourself as the listener, but you're also suddenly wondering well actually where's the singer coming from on this and i think that happens in this song a couple of times but but particularly the incredibly (laughs) incredibly moving line sung unbelievably well where he says what a shame if all we've shared can't last which puts you in the mind of somebody who's in in a in a place of resignation to the, the loss of the relationship but then it's followed up immediately by this kind of plaintive i can change i swear which is which is what you say just before you get to that mental state. So where is he actually? Where is the singer in this song? I'm not sure. But what I do get is the what I feel I get from this song is the kind of deep respect almost that, that comes through to to the the other person in the song. Yeah. Um, you know, all the stuff about, uh, you know, you made it there somehow, you know, um, you've known it all the time. So I don't see that as being a flip-off, but I, I can see how people would see those lines being, those kind of pointed in a different direction. But for me, I, I find it more more conciliatory, I guess. Yeah, than that. that's interesting. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a very soul, soulful performance, I think, this one. And it's, very, um, and it's a very anguished performance as well. I mean, you've got lines in it like, um, like a corkscrew to the heart, for example. I mean, that's... That's perhaps slightly less ambiguous than, <laughs> than, than some yeah. of the other lines in this one. You know, hear me singing through these tears. Time is a jet plane. It moves too fast. We talked earlier, didn't we, about the idea that this is obviously seen in many quarters as a breakup album. And we can totally, uh, I mean, you can you can completely see this. I mean, the, the title in itself, if you look at it perhaps 
simplistically you're a big girl now it's this idea okay you're off you're, you're on your own then like but it doesn't have that same level of kind of bitterness maybe that as you say because of the respect that he clearly feels for the other person or the, the the persona feels for the other person we don't really feel that do we we don't think that oh yeah that he's he's moving on and, and he's quite happy about it because clearly he's not no and again i'm at the risk of hitting the broken record again the the song itself is is a, is a tremendous achievement but it's elevated so much by his performance and the the astonishing thing about it is i think it's pretty indisputable that the new york version that we now have is is on another level again so once more if you think bob dylan can't sing if you go and listen to this <laughs> yes and the bootleg version we we do need to get a, a bell to ring uh, and we say this, don't we? Because it's it's becoming more and more of a kind of ongoing theme, really. Okay, well let's uh, let's we, we had a few sort of discussion points, didn't we? That we wanted to that we wanted to kind of address. I've got another one though. I'm going to throw you in at the deep end here. I was thinking as we've been going through this, and we've been talking about how some of these really really great songs here suffer um, in comparison to some of the other really really strong stuff how many of the i mean if you were going to make a, oh, a bob dylan top 20 or top 30 whatever it may be i think that some of these songs that, that are kind of considered lesser songs on this album would probably sneak into certainly a top 20 maybe uh, maybe a top 20 certainly a top 30 of kind of the whole bob dylan canon really what do you reckon yeah, thanks for that, mate. Yeah, um, I'm just going to sit back and have a, have a cup of tea now and see how you do. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such a, a loaded question, isn't it? Because even something like the songs we've just been talking about, uh, even Simple Twist of Fate, might not get into some people's top 20, right? Yes. But I think you're right in the sense that is You're a Big Girl Now considered one of the great Bob Dylan songs? Shelter from the Storm has got its fans, hasn't it? If you see us, say hello. I mean, it's not the first song you'd, you'd pick for your, uh, your list, is it? But, but once, you've, once you've considered it, you're really saying something if you're going to pick something ahead of it. So Yeah, I, I, mean, the other, I suppose the other thing is if, if, if some of those songs were on a what, what's kind of considered a slightly lesser album, let's say, then they would probably have come, they'd have had far more prominence, wouldn't they? As it is, they've... Uh, well, it's the idea of yeah, sneaking under the radar, as you said. I've, I've got one to throw back uh, to you then, Rich. So um, we were very kind about Planet Waves, uh, and I think rightly so, because it is a great record. But given that we said that was a great record, is there any song on Blood on the Tracks that wouldn't improve Planet Waves? No, I don't think there is. I think it's, 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 it, that's an absolute sort of categorical kind of uh, truth, isn't it? And also, if two or three of these songs were on self-portrait, then would we still be talking about self-portrait in, in quite the terms that we do? I, I, I think that these, this is just like a proper kind of high watermark, isn't it? I mean, it's just amazing. Okay, I think you dealt very well with that very unfair kind of hospital pass of a question. So, uh, so I salute you for it. Yeah, well, we had, the sort of discussion points that we had then were really sort of surrounding musicianship and, and the kind of New York and a Minneapolis um, kind of split, I suppose. I mean, you're a little bit better versed on this than I am, but um, I mean, what's, 
what's your sort of opinion on it? I mean, because obviously there's a, there's a bit of a story behind it that we kind of talked about earlier, but I mean, what do you think? Do you think, do you think the musicianship is better or worse? Do you think it matters? Yeah, I think that's about the second part of that question is really key, I think, because I think you could objectively say that the performances are better in New York, uh, but we'll get onto that in a, in a minute, I suppose. But in terms of whether I would personally now prefer the record to be made up of those New York performances, I think there is something for the variety that he gets on this album by dispersing those Minneapolis performances. And, you know, classic records or, or any kind of record that we, we enjoy, they're not scientific processes where you sort of paint by numbers and, and come up with a, a perfect record. They're messy, aren't they? They're, they're of their time, but the best ones somehow have this kind of alchemy where they transcend the, uh, the environment they've come out of. It's a bit like the sort of weird production values you get on 80s records and, you know, the best, the best ones still still work, don't they? And I sort of feel like that with, with this one. I can see why he wanted to go along with his brother's suggestion and mix things up a little bit. Because if we did have the New York version of this record, the charge could have been laid at him that actually this was this is pretty, he's pretty much done what he would have done in the 60s. We talked before, I think, about how a lot of these arrangements are similar to the sort of stuff he was doing on bringing it all back home. And he, well, he's moved away from that by... Uh, by re-recording them. And I do like the way the album flows. I mean, Tangled Up in Blue, Minneapolis, Simple Twisted Fate, New York, You're a Big Girl Now, Idiot Wind, Minneapolis. And I, I've got no complaints with that, those first four songs. And of course, what we gain is the, the variety, not just in instrumentation, but in delivery and feeling. The version of Idiot Wind on from the New York sessions might be better. I think I probably do prefer it. Yeah. But it doesn't have that drive, that, uh, that anger that this one has. And I think the record benefits from having it. So I guess my question in the end is, okay, we've got that variety of both emotional range and, and musician and, you know, musicality arrangements, I suppose. And that makes the record richer, I think. But is it worth the loss that we have? And, and the loss is, if we're being really unkind, we could say that the competence of the performances from New York is... Is, is stronger and also the immediacy and the rawness of his, his of the emotion and his delivery is is greater in the new york versions so i can see the arguments for sure but i i do very much enjoy the record as it is and I, for me i think having this version i'm very glad that we do have this version and we can go back to the new york one if we want to yeah and i think that what you've said there about art is very important because art is inherently imperfection isn't it it's full of imperfections but it's those imperfections that make things great and you sort of learn to live with them and realize that they're the thing that those like kind of happy accidents or strange mistakes are the kind of things that actually give it its kind of character really and give it its sort of quirkiness and so I can't think of I, I, I think when I think back now to first listening to it if I'd never heard the sort of extra New York takes and things like that, I don't think that I don't think I would think any less of the record, put it that way. I think I would still love this record because I just think it works so well. I think they, they got so much of it right. And of course it's you, you you learn to love a record like that and it begins to kind of live and breathe, doesn't it? Who who were the Minneapolis musicians? Because I mean like the way that they talked about 
some it's like it's a bar band i mean it's a pretty bloody good bar band if you're asking me the, 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 do we know much about this or no i don't know uh, i must admit that's a, a gap in my my research here but i did want to ask you about them rich because the charge is leveled but the playing is is weak on those five songs and like you i've never really felt that when listening to the record but do you think there's any kind of basis for that supposition to, to hold up? I can see why they might have levelled that charge. And a lot of it's got to do with the fact that he's recorded quite a lot in Nashville up to this point in time. And I mean, for anyone that's ever played out in Nashville, I mean, Nashville players are probably the best players in the world, if not definitely the best players in the world. I mean, you give a Nashville musician, play it, play a song through once, um, and they'll write the chord charts out as they're doing it. They might have one run through, they might not need it, and that's it, really. It's a take. They're, that's how good they are. And I mean, anyone in comparison with that, I think, is is probably going to to look at it and think, well, the, the musicianship is kind of substandard. I mean, the, the first time I went out to Nashville, I didn't want to pick up a guitar for about two years afterwards because I thought, well, what, what could I possibly do? And I'm just a minor tiny example there i'm not being judged by gazillions of people like this record is i think that i like the feel of the playing i've got to be honest i think it's got drive i think it's got passion and i think it's got kind of an attitude which you might not get with a more kind of cultured musician if that makes sense and i think that's probably what lends it a lot of its strength and its power and its quality whereas i but it has got imperfections in it hasn't it and i think that's that's probably where where the kind of more purist musicians probably look at it and think, well, that's a, that's a bum note here or whatever. But I think that the strength of the performances and the strength of the songs carry, carry things through anyway. Yeah, that's definitely true. And while we're on that, I think Dylan's performances are, are, are astonishing throughout. And we've, we've talked about this already. I won't harp on about it at length. But I think the fact that he's delivered such great performances, both in New York and in Minneapolis. This shows a guy who knows he's got 10 fantastic songs and is absolutely doing them justice. And whether or not that comes from how personally invested he was in the stories behind the songs or not, doesn't really matter. The, the feeling comes through either way. Yeah, I, I totally go along with that. And I think that he's, he's probably singing as well here as he ever has done or ever did do, really. I mean... This and, and Desire, which we'll get to, there's no weak singing on, on, on either of those records, is there really? So, so yeah. I, I think so. And just while we're on that as well, um, I was waxing lyrical about Idiot Wind a little while ago. And as I say, I do think that's a tremendous song. But one thing that just occurred to me while we were talking, uh, do you remember the famous story about Dylan and Keith Richards, where supposedly Dylan said to him, oh, I could have written satisfaction but you couldn't have written desolation row yes I, I just just occurred to me i think the person who wrote idiot wind could have written desolation row but i'm not sure the person who wrote desolation row could have written idiot wind so i think we're just at that point now with dylan where he's just hit it he's hit the absolute height even for him yeah well i mean we said earlier on didn't we he almost becomes a genre unto himself at this point in time because there's no one that can touch him in terms of anything really is there at this point in time but yeah that's that's a really interesting take on it because yeah i think you're right he's moved on and come on leaps and bounds yet again hasn't he really well i guess we're we're nearly ready to wrap up right rich but just before we do we had one more discussion point we wanted to touch on and it it 
plays into what we've just been talking about, I suppose, because I don't know about you, but one thing that does get my goat a little bit is uh, how people talk about this as a breakup record. I think that's unfair on a couple of levels. Obviously, the song's largely about relationships. Obviously, we know what Dylan's backstory was around this time, so it's understandable. But there's so much more going on here, isn't there? Um, We've already talked about the way in which he's completely revolutionised his way of songwriting. We talked about the fact that his performances are outstanding. There's that quite amazing mashup of styles between the New Yorker and Minneapolis recordings that shouldn't work, but for me, and I think for you, does. And there's just so much more in the songs than than the kind of what the what the phrase breakup album suggests. We talked about the ambiguity in the song. We talked about the way in which you could play with narrative and you're never quite sure where you stand. This is this isn't a typical breakup record. No. But the last Oh, sorry, not no, no, no. I, 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 you, you carry on. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, yes, okay. There's a breakup that happened in the background, but it is. It's, it's much more than that. You, you carry on. Yeah, and the other thing that annoys me a bit is uh, we've got this kind of genre almost that's emerged of um, the tortured male genius who goes through a breakup, but nevertheless he emerges on the other side of it with this uh, explosion of creativity that. Um, establishes him as, 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 as the great artist he always knew he was. And I, I think that kind of myth runs through a lot of rock and roll, doesn't it? If we're honest, there's a lot of sexism and that's one aspect of it that we, yeah, we see. Yeah. And we see it quite directly in the fact that when female artists sing about relationships and particularly breakups, they're treated in a very different way. I'm just going to demonstrate how down with the kids I am by giving the example of Taylor Swift. I mean, I think some of her songs are less than 10 years old, right? So, you know, that's pretty pretty good for me. So, yeah, you know, I, I, she, she, she gets pelters, doesn't she, for writing about relationships. Um, the narrative is, oh, you know, this, uh, this young woman, uh, she hasn't gotten over it. She's still pining for this guy who's left her in the lurch. We don't get anything like that about male artists. And the whole thing stinks, frankly. But I don't think that's where Dylan is on this record. I don't think he's, I don't, we, we can, we can place this in that genre at all. So basically, I don't think the, the, the phrase breakup album helps us understand this, this record very much at all. No, that's, uh, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Taylor Swift. I mean, I, I think Taylor Swift is a, is a fantastic songwriter. And I think that she gets a lot of unfair press for this, for the, for the, uh, the breakup stuff. Uh, also interesting, I mean, I, I still consider the 1990s to be contemporary. So like to say that this is a, a very, very uh, modern reference, my goodness. I, I mentioned modernism earlier and I still think that this is, I think of this as being quite a modernist record. I mean, a, a lot of what modernists did was try to sort of mirror the fractured nature of the world and of the kind of human experience. And, um, and I think Dylan's doing this here. I think this isn't just about him. I think this is about humanity in general. I think this is about the way that the world works. And one of the things that, again, modernist poets in particular used to do was they'd, they'd focus on a real sort of specific detail or specific series of details. And what they would then do with it is kind of use it almost as a microcosm for a much broader, wider experience. And I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, okay, Dylan might well be writing about a breakup, but in writing about a breakup, He's not necessarily writing about him. He's writing about everyone. He's writing about anyone that, that's ever been through a breakup. It's not, it, it, he sort of doesn't own it in that respect kind of thing because it's not, I don't think he'd ever be as kind of 
wearing his heart on his sleeve, kind of almost a bit sort of self-centered, really. I don't think that's his kind of way of doing this because he's not a... Um, a singer-songwriter that's kind of confessional in that sense, is he really? I mean, it's it's just, it's it's always a wider, wider kind of picture. And I think that that, therefore, to, to kind of say, oh, look, this is Bob Dylan self-pitying about his breakup. This is not what's going on here. Uh, it might be in the background, but it's not what's going on. That's selling it short. Absolutely. And at the very least, what's going on is he started with something that might have been raw and personal to himself, but he's layered it. And he hasn't just layered it in the way a hack might, might try and obfuscate. He's put the full force of his craft on this to, um, to, to present something, as you say, that's multifaceted, that's different, that's universal. And perhaps it still has that kernel of something that's meaningful for him. And, you know, some of the performances he's, he's, he's delivered of these songs over the years suggest that may well be true. But it's not at all what drives the record for us, the listener. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think with that, on that note, we're probably about ready to kind of talk about last thoughts, really. I mean, um, shall I kick off and then uh, is that all right with you? Yeah, go for it. So, I mean, what do I think? Well, I think that we talked a lot in the earlier podcasts about Bob Dylan wearing masks and he's doing that here. But I don't think that this is just like a return to form as some people kind of, thought or have subsequently thought of it as i have said already i think this is him inventing almost an entirely new genre this is an entirely new version of bob dylan and i think it's i mean it would be it's so easy to just go on about how great this record is and i think we've probably done <laughs> that <laughs> enough but i mean it sticks him right on a pedestal i mentioned earlier on the, the kind of competition that he had at this moment in history but there's no one that could touch him with this. We talked about the kind of the progression in his career. And we said that Highway 61, he's kind of ahead of the curve. And then there's other people that have kind of caught up. And I would argue there are other people, other artists that could probably have come close, certainly to doing what he did on self-portrait, but probably come close to some of the things on uh, Planet Waves, for example. Not all of them, but some of them. But... I don't think anyone could touch this. I don't think anyone has really touched this as a record since, but I don't think any of his contemporaries at the time could do anything like this. I mean, I think this is him just hitting one out of the park, really. And yeah, that's probably my last thoughts. So what are you thinking then, Mark? Well, I agree with everything you've just said. I think first and foremost, you've got 10 outstanding songs. Yeah. And I think you're right. That's but ultimately that's why it's a return to form because he's just produced this collection of, of, of superb songs performed in, a, in a, such an affecting way. But I think you're right. It's the thing that makes it great is that he's done that at the same time as creating this entirely new style, reinventing himself and, and doing something new and unique again for at least the second time, if not the third time, which is quite astonishing, really. I think there's one thing that, that I really want to reflect on at the end of this, though, and that's that we've been doing this now for, for a year or however long it is, and we are plodding through these records sequentially. And it, it's so clear, isn't it, when we, we do it that way, that, that this is something so new. But as I said at the start, for me, I heard this record on Highway 61 revisited for the first time on the first, on the first day I was ever listening to Bob Dylan. So for me, Tangled Up in Blue was quintessentially Dylan-esque in the same way that Like a Rolling Stone was. 
And so all the rest of my experience of listening to Bob Dylan was coloured with the fact that, oh, yeah, this is the guy that wrote Tangled Up in Blue. This is the guy that wrote Idiot Lynn. So this is the stuff he does. And I'm really glad we've gone through this process so that actually I can take a step back and realise just what an amazing leap forward it was. I think before we, we started this process, I would always have said Blood on the Tracks would be in my top three or four Bob Dylan records, if not my top three or four records by anybody. But I would never really have appreciated just what a step forward it was for him as an artist um, without going through this process. So, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for kicking this off and uh, making sure that we got to experience this together. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting thought. That last one, I'm going to just kind of jump in on it if I may, just for a second. And I think it has been and it continues to be such an interesting thing to look at them sequentially. And I think this is where the Shakespeare comparison really holds up because we see that we see with uh, Shakespeare's work as well the kind of continual development and the reinventions and the different stylings etc etc and the the taking like a magpie from different places and just the kind of evolution of the craft and i think that more than anything is is why we're doing this that why more than anything is why we are at least attempting to make these comparisons and uh yeah it's uh this is certainly as i've said before it's a high watermark isn't it a high watermark mark there we go i can't get more poetic than that to end things <laughs> up <laughs> i think that's a suitable note to end on isn't it <laughs> thank you very much indeed for joining us on this episode of the podcast please do search for us on twitter you can find us at dylan american we will be delighted to answer and discuss any questions that you have and thank you very much indeed to all of those people who've posted questions and ideas to date we really really appreciate it and we will look forward to you joining us next time when we'll be looking at the basement tapes thank you very much Mm -hmm.